Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites right here on the Mark Steiner Show. This morning, we're hearing a town hall that I moderated last week at the First Baptist Church Family Life and Cultural Center in Salisbury, Maryland. It was called Industrial CAFOs, Economics, and Public Health in Delmarva, and focused on the question, how safe is your water? The impetus of the town meeting were the proposed poultry operations in Wicomico County that would include up to 13 chicken houses, each holding 30,000 chickens each to be rotated every three months. This directly affected the life, health, and welfare of the black community in Salisbury where these houses were going to be put. The Brill operation would sit on top of a thing called the Paleo Channel, which is the public drinking water source for all of Salisbury's residents. When this was first proposed, citizens were left out of the county council discussions, and many were concerned about the health risks posed by these operations. What happened next was unique in the history of the eastern shore of Maryland. Black, Latino, and white communities coming together to convene these town meetings so their voices could be heard, so they could build a political movement to have their demands be met and live a healthy life. Our guests on this panel were Dr. Sokobi Wilson, assistant professor with the Maryland Institute for Applied Environmental Health and the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics School of Public Health at the University of Maryland College Park. Michelle Merkel, co-director of Food and Water Justice at Food and Water Watch. Dr. Julian Fry, project director of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health's Center for a Livable Future and a faculty member in the Department of Environmental Health Services, Behavior and Society at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. It was sponsored by the Wicomico NAACP and Socially Responsible Agricultural Project. Dr. Don Ickard, Professor Emeritus of Agricultural Economics at the University of Missouri, delivered a keynote address there, and we will play that on the next episode of Soundbites two weeks from today. We are preempted next week for Thanksgiving, as we all are. We're going to start with Dr. Julian Fry, and she wrote an incredibly interesting response to the county when they said that Johns Hopkins and CLF were part of a health assessment they were never part of. And she created her own health assessment, uh, which is readily available. But I'll let Dr. Julian Fry lead off and tell you about the health impacts of what she has found and where that may take us for us this conversation. Julian? Wherever you like, up here, wherever you're comfortable. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming out tonight. Um, so, this, uh, the health impact assessment uh, by the Wicomico County Health Department has to do with one particular large-scale poultry operation, um, but I think it's indicative of larger issues that are more generally uh, uh, involved with these issues um, in terms of transparency and uh, independent groups weighing, being able to weigh the evidence. So by a little, for a little bit of um, background, some stakeholders had requested that the local health department conduct a health impact assessment on this particular operation, proposed operation, because it is a proposed 10-house operation, which is quite large, that would be built on top of the Paleo Channel, which is a very important and also a very sensitive source of drinking water for the city of Salisbury. Uh, it's sensitive uh, because whatever activities are taking place at the surface, um, it's very easy for contaminants to soak right through and contaminate that water. Uh, that is a fact that has been established in several reports over the years having to do with the Paleo Channel, not 
focused on poultry operations, but several reports over the years have, said, have stated very plainly that this is a source of drinking water that is very sensitive to contamination. We need to keep a close eye, close eye and good control over what is happening at the surface. So that is um, some of the backstory. So some stakeholders uh, in this community had asked the local health department to conduct a health impact assessment. Uh, they also raised their voices and expressed many concerns to other elected officials um, and have held a few forums, pu uh, public forums, to share information with the community, uh, which I've been proud to take part in. Uh, the answer from the local health department was, was that there would not be a health impact assessment. Um, and uh, different approvals have gone through, and um, it, it seems that the, that the county uh, will be uh, allowing the uh, 10 house operation to be built on top of the Paleo Channel. In April, there was a health impact assessment released by the local health department. Uh, stakeholders didn't see it until a little while later. They discovered the report uh, by accident. It was published with a news article up in Cecil County having to do with a proposed operation up there. And the journalists had gotten a hold of the health impact assessment report and um, put a version online. That was the first time that I had ever heard of the health impact assessment, the first time that I'd ever seen the report. Um, I can't speak for the other stakeholders involved, but what I've heard from them is that the, that is the same for them. So we were very surprised uh, to see this report. Um, there was an email that, uh, where the author of the report basically said uh, we did not share this directly with the groups that were asking for it and the citizens. So let me tell you a little bit about what a health impact assessment is. The nice thing about a health impact assessment is that it is a flexible tool. If you don't have a lot of resources and a lot of time, it's possible to do a rapid health impact assessment. And what you're doing is you're weighing the negative and positive health impacts of a proposed policy or a proposed project. Um, if you have more resources, then you can, then you can take longer and, and do a more thorough job. But the fact that it's flexible, it's a flexible tool that we can use, doesn't mean that there are not accepted guidelines that should be followed uh, when um, health professionals or, or other folks familiar with the process are conducting a health impact assessment. There are actually widely accepted guidelines for how a health impact assessment should be done. Um, these guidelines are available from the World Health Organization and other groups. And uh, these guidelines were actually cited in the health impact assessment report put out by the Wacomico County Health Department. We were concerned about uh, when we reviewed the health impact assessment report is some evidence was actually uh, misinterpreted. There was a report by a group called Advanced Land and Water Incorporated, and they were a consultant that did a report about the Paleo Channel. Um, the report uh, might have been a little bit broader than that, but they talked about the Paleo Channel in this report. And they, they, what happened in the health impact assessment is that there was a sentence about the Paleo Channel's level of susceptibility to nitrate contamination. And it was spliced in a way that 
the evidence was presented in this health impact assessment as though the paleo channel is not susceptible to contamination from nitrates. And nitrates are one of the top pollutants that I'm worried about as a public health professional with this particular operation being built on top of a sensitive drinking source of drinking water. So we pulled up the report, and what it actually said was that the paleo channel, based on current activity on the surface, is not currently at risk of being contaminated with nitrates, but that intensive agricultural activities would need to be carefully monitored because it is so susceptible to nitrate pollution. So we were shocked, actually, uh, that this report was so badly mis misinterpreted um, and the evidence uh, was included in the report in a way that was not consistent at all with how uh, that report and many others have stated very clearly that um, you'd be worried about contamination based on activity at the surface. Um, a, ver uh, a very specific concern that we had was that there was not one single mention of adverse events in this health impact assessment. So that's something that would be, um, that, that would always be included in health impact assessments. Um, with this operation, the plan is to take the manure from the 10 houses and export it somewhere else. So this is a no land mega operation. They don't have the cropland associated with the operation where the waste will be spread. Um, so the claim is that there is no risk of, of runoff because uh, the waste is not going to be spread right there. The problem with that is that, um, as we just saw with the hurricane that went through North Carolina, we ha you don't even need a hurricane to have flooding events. So if you're, if you're storing the waste or the waste just hasn't been cleared out of the houses yet and you have a flooding event, um, that waste can run off and impact the paleo channel very directly. And as I said, we're very worried about nitrates. Nitrates um, cause health issues if infants are exposed to water that are high, that drinking water that's high in nitrates. Um, but it's also associated with bladder cancer, um, birth defects, thyroid uh, problems, and, and other things. So this is a very serious concern. There's also um, concern about contaminants. So human waste and animal waste contains bacteria, viruses, and other things. And if that went right into um, the paleo channel, we'd also be concerned about that. So those are some main concerns that, that my colleagues and I detailed in the letter that we wrote. And I want to say to you, we take absolutely no pleasure at all writing a detailed letter and sending it to a local health department. As a health professional, um, I, at one point I lived out west. I worked for the state health department um, for New Mexico. I understand that health departments don't have all the resources they need. They don't have all of the expertise they need to address every single issue that comes across their desk. But that is no excuse for the lack of transparency and the misrepresentation of evidence in the health impact assessment um, that was performed. Um, but like I said, we take absolutely no pleasure in doing that, but we felt that we had a duty 
um, for multiple reasons, partly because we were named as a stakeholder. We were not aware of, the, of this going on. Um, we were not consulted. Uh, we had no chance to weigh in. Um, so the lack of transparency is very troubling. And one other point I wanted to make, the regulations that are applied to large-scale animal operations, like CAFOs, there are very serious regulatory gaps. There are no air regulations that apply to CAFOs. There is no monitoring, and certainly no robust monitoring, on water quality, air quality, what are people being exposed to, especially people who live near these operations and rely on private wells. Those folks are responsible for testing their own water and taking care of it if there's a problem. And a lot of folks just don't test their water regularly. Um, but what you need to understand is that a health impact assessment is not required for one of these operations to be passed. So the fact that we wrote a letter and said this health impact assessment falls dangerously short in assessing the health risks involving stakeholders and communicating the risks to the community, that does not stop this permitting process. And that's where you come in and where your neighbors come in and your friends and your coworkers. There, there's nothing else for us to do. I don't live over here. I have family that lives in this area, but I don't live here. So we're trying to share, we're trying to give this information to you all, but it's really up to you to organize and run with it um, because I'm not a voter here. And like I said, a good health impact assessment, unfortunately, is not required for one of these operations to be approved. Um, so I'm really glad that you're all here and I hope that you can use this information um, and ask for a new health impact assessment performed by an independent trained group. That was the ask in our letter. Uh, we sent our letter also to the governor. We sent it to multiple state agencies. I don't know how far we're going to get, um, but I think it, it really needs to be spread around at the local level, and um, your concern needs to be communicated and organized um, so that something will happen um, in response to these issues. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Julian Fry. So our next speaker is Dr. Sokobi Wilson. Uh, he's an assistant professor with the Maryland Institute for Applied Environmental Health. He is in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics in the School of Public Health at the University of Maryland College Park. I'll talk a bit about that in a moment, why that's significant as well. He's also an environmental health scientist with over 10 years of experience uh, and works closely with communities about um, community-based exposure, environmental justice, uh, the science of that, social epidemiology, environmental health disparities, air pollution monitoring, and more. Um, and I was reading a letter that was written by the Delmarva poultry industry last year that called out Dr. Sokovi um, Wilson, um, asking why the University of Maryland would allow one of its scientists to do this kind of work um, for communities uh, and trying to stop his work. Uh, but I, knowing uh, Dr. Wilson, little I know him, I know that's hard to do when he gets ready to start something, you don't pull him back. 
Dr. Wilson, it's your turn. Thank you. So I'm going to follow up on a couple points that Dr. Farrar made and then get into uh, some other issues around environmental justice. Um, so at, at the Maryland Institute for Applied Environmental Health, we've done many health impact assessments uh, with communities. I was part of the team that did the health impact assessment of the uh, potential public health impacts of fracking in Western Maryland, which is uh, you know, very much a hot button issue in the state. Um, you know, there was a fracking moratorium put in place. That moratorium expires in 2017. And what's the reason why I bring that up is, yes, Western Maryland is far away. Uh, it, yes, you know, there's a particular type of shale that's um, in Western Maryland. But we have shale throughout the state. So it was, if fracking is allowed in Western Maryland, they're going to frack in Prince George's County. They're going to frack in the Eastern Shore. So um, it's important to be aware of, you know, these multiple issues and how you know, communities um, who, who may not have the voice, uh, their voice has not been heard, to make sure we all are working together, as Dr. Frost said. One of the important issues that I want to uh, hit on when it comes to this particular HIA, when you, when you do a health impact assessment, uh, as Dr. Frost mentioned, there's several stages. You have a screening stage, do we need the HIA? You have the scoping stage. The scoping stage, to me, is one of the most important aspects of the HIA. That's where you engage all the stakeholders. And in particular, you engage the stakeholders who will be most impacted, and their feedback, their lived experiences, their knowledge, their concerns, those are the concerns that bound, create the boundaries for the HIA. And so the reason why the HA was so problematic, the bounds were so tight, and they were not informed by the people who will be most impacted uh, by that facility. And, and when you think about that type of approach, it really is a way to disempower you and, and take away your voice. When you're doing community engagement, and, and the scoping part is where you do community engagement, it, it's supposed to be deep, right? It's supposed to be authentic, right? It's supposed to be transformative. Nothing was deep, nothing was authentic, and nothing was trans transformative about the HIA. For me, that HIA was quite fraudulent because it did not capture the voice of the community. That's a very important part of HIAs. It is supposed to capture the voice of the most impacted stakeholders. So you're going to have academics like us, you're going to have advocates, you're going to have policymakers, you're going to have industry. But the people who are going to host the facility, who are going to be impacted from an environmental perspective, who are going to be impacted from a health perspective, their voices have to be paramount. Their, their voices have to be the primary voices. And so when I do HIAs, that is the core constituency that I rely on to help provide the feedback on what should be the balance, what should be the topics of concern in the HIA. We did that in the HIA for fracking. As Mark mentioned, we worked on a health impact assessment with the Indian River community in uh, Delaware to look at the potential impacts of a chicken processing plant, right? And so that HIA was a rapid HIA done by one of my students. Uh, but she worked with the community members. She worked with the advocacy groups and the activists to make sure the community voices were heard in that health impact assessment. She did that HIA for a period of four or five months and so in the end, we presented the HIA to the community, the results, because another part of the HIA is 
you have to have reporting. It says in the guidelines, whether it be the WHO guidelines, the Pew guidelines, the, the National Academy of Sciences guidelines, the health impact part of the guidelines, one of the primary stages is monitoring and reporting. There has to be report back. There has to be dissemination. That's where your transparency is. If you do not have that, your HIA is fraudulent. It is incomplete. So your scoping was weak and fraudulent. Your report and the monitor was fraudulent. So what did you actually do? You did nothing. Okay? And so the reason why I maybe get a little emotional, and I'll, well, we, I think many of us in the room are emotional. Yeah. So, so, you know, part of the reason why this really, I'm going to use the word ang- ang- anger. This really angers me because when you look at the differential burden of chicken farming, industrial animal operations, who, who are the people who are most impacted? Poor folks, people of color. In, in this situation, this siting of this chicken farm is an example of environmental injustice. Raise your hand if you heard of environmental justice or injustice before in this room. Okay, many of you have. But I'm going to still talk about it anyway. So when you think about environmental justice, right, it is the child of the civil rights movement. We're talking about people fighting against the differential burden of hazards due to people's race, ethnicity, their SCS, their immigrant immigrant status, where they're from, and how they look. Doesn't that sound familiar to y'all? And so what it is, how, why do we have incinerators primarily in, in people of color, low-income communities? Why do we primarily have landfills in people of color, low-income communities? Why do we primarily have chicken farms in people of color, low-income communities? There's something going on there. Okay? And so that's, that's, the, that's a core issue with this facility. It's not just it'll be the differential siting of a hazard in your community. It's also differential access to the decision-making process about the site and facility in the first place. That is a form of environmental injustice. I would dare say that this is environmental racism, that you, people were targeted because of their skin color to host the facility. That is not a made-up phenomenon, oh, you just pulled that word out your hat because you were academic. No, that is a real thing. There's been work looking at environmental racism associated with Distribution of, of animal operations, for example, in North Carolina, as Dr. Fry mentioned, for years. One of my mentors, um, Dr. Steve Wing, who started doing work on this issue back in the, in the mid-90s with the concerns of artillery, was one of the uh, first people, as a public scientist, to work with communities on the issue of hog farming in North Carolina. North Carolina, eastern North Carolina, is post-slavery freedmen, folks, right, living in eastern North Carolina, most of those hog farms are located primarily in low-income, people-of-color communities. And he fought, bled, working with those communities to stop the siding of hog farms in those communities. He also did a lot of research to look at some of the pollution impacts. As Dr. Fry mentioned, there are various pollutants associated with exposure uh, that are emitted from CAFOs, whether it be chicken farms or hog farms. You have ammonia, you have volatilic compounds, you have endotoxins. Those, those exposures can lead to burning the eyes, nose, and throat. It can lead to a reduction in your immune response. It can lead to asthma. It can exacerbate asthma. It can lead to other cardiopulmonary functioning problems. It can also lead to other health issues. 
okay? So if you have an occupational exposure, those folks are going to have high exposures. If you also live in the community, you're also going to be exposed, right? So if you work there and then live in the community, you're getting a double dose. If you're a nearby neighbor living in one of these facilities, you've been exposed to toxics that impact the health of your lungs and target certain other organs in your bodies. And so his work in many ways was the foundational work for the work that we do today. And unfortunately, um, part of the reason I'm getting emotional, Steve passed away this morning um, from cancer. And he was my mentor. He fought. And the reason why I'm emotional, he fought for people. He fought for everybody, not just black folks, you know, rural white folks, too. I mean, working together, trying to build partnerships to address the concerns of communities when it comes to these operations. So he wasn't about stopping stuff. He was about community building. He wasn't about taking people's voices. He was about empowering folks to speak with their own voices. He was about making sure that people could have healthy communities. And the problem with this HIA and the problem with this deciding process is your voice is not being heard. Your power is, not being, is, is being taken away from you. And, and, thank you. And what's, what's important is we have to make sure that, this, that policies that are implemented, things are done, they're evidence-based, right? We have to make sure that people who are most impacted are at the table. And that's the thing about environmental justice is this HIA took away your opportunity to be at the table as, the, as an engaged stakeholder group. And getting back to what Mark said about the HIA in Delaware, that HIA was instrumental in helping the community uh, stop that chicken processing plant from being cited. So when done correctly, when done correctly, when it speaks with the voice of the most impacted stakeholders, when it takes into those concerns and done in the correct way. And I'm not saying that in every case something will be stopped. But if it's not, what are the alternatives? Why are you bringing us a chicken farm? What else is out there that would bring in economic development where we can maximize the benefits and minimize the impacts? Why are you always bringing crap stuff to our communities? Why is it always an incinerator? Why is it always some chemical plant? It's, why is it always pollutants that not just impact the environment, but impact my health? Why do we have tox, toxics in our bodies? It's just not enough you're using my community as a sink for pollution. You're using my body as a sink for pollution. You're using the body of my developing feet if I'm a pregnant mother as a sink for pollution. Think about that. Think about that. So when we're talking about the science of being exposed to multiple chemicals, chemical mixtures and health effects, that's important. But think about from a from the public health perspective of how these multiple facilities, these multiple hazards, what do they do to our health, but also what do they do to the quality of life? What do they do to property values, right? These facilities just not impact your health. They impact the health of your community. They basically kill communities. I think John is going to talk about some of those issues a little bit more. Um, and I can go on and on. I, I'm going to, you know, because I uh, got emotional. But just in, in memory of Steve, I think it's important uh, and to, to continue the fight against this facility, but not just against stuff, fight for what do you want? What is the vision for a community? 
What type of economic development do you want to have in your community? So when you engage your elected officials, because some people got elected uh, last night, hold them accountable. What I, my observation is, we haven't held ourselves accountable enough as it relates to being engaged citizens. You know, democracy to work, you have to put work in, as y'all see. We have to make sure that we have an agenda as, you know, citizens, hold ourselves accountable, hold our elected officials accountable, make sure there's transparency. And that's something that I think a lesson learned from the, from the, the election, that we have to make sure that we, are, we have skin in the game. We cannot be passively engaged in this democracy. We have to be active agents of change in democracy. And I'm just going to end there because, um, yeah, I'm in there. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Zacoby Wilson. That was Dr. Zacoby Wilson. You also heard Michelle Merkel, Dr. Julian Fry. We have to take a short break. Stay with us. When we come back, we'll hear the rest of this panel called Industrial CAFOs, Economics, and Public Health in Delmarva. How safe is your water? Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Sound Bites right here on the Mark Steiner Show. And this hour, we're listening to a town hall meeting I moderated last week at the First Baptist Church Family Life and Cultural Center in Salisbury, Maryland. It was called Industrial CAFOs, Economics and Public Health in Delmarva, and focused on the question, how safe is your water? It took place at the First Baptist Church because it is the black community of Salisbury that's directly affected by the building of these CAFOs affecting the health and welfare of its citizens. We talked about the health and environmental risks posed by the expansion of these poultry operations on the eastern shore and the rest of Delmarva, and discussed how communities can respond. Our guests were Dr. Sokobi Wilson, assistant professor with the Maryland Institute for Applied Environmental Health and the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics School of Public Health at the University of Maryland College Park. Michelle Merkel, co-director of Food and Water Justice at Food and Water Watch. Dr. Julian Fry, Project Director of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health's Center for a Livable Future and a faculty member in the Department of Environmental Health Services, Behavior and Society at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. It was sponsored by the Wicomico NAACP and Social Responsible Agricultural Project. I'd like to introduce now Michelle Merkel. She's co-director of Food and Water Justice, which is the legal arm of Food and Water Watch. She was formerly with the Chesapeake Regional Coordinator for the Waterkeeper Alliance. Uh, she was a league chief counsel for Waterkeeper Alliance. She was senior counsel in the Environmental Integrity Project. She worked the, the, at the EPA uh, before that and uh, was a general counsel for uh, the uh, Chattahoochee Riverkeeper as well. Uh, she is, has a long history of as an environmental, a legal environmental warrior. Uh, and, and so let me introduce you uh, Michelle Merkel. Thank you very much. If I ever run for office, you're going to be my campaign manager. Um, thanks for having me tonight. I'm really happy to be here. And if you've been following this fight at all, you'll know that the community has had basically two asks. One from the county council has been to pass a moratorium on the building of new industrial poultry operations and pass a moratorium on the expansion of existing ones until they pass a comprehensive public health ordinance to protect them. 
The second ask has been to terminate the permitting of the 10 building operation that is on Naylor Mill Road that Jillian spoke about. Um, since the county relied on a faulty, faulty health impact assessment, which again is a, also a reasonable ask. So because Jillian and Jacoby focused on that second ask, I'm going to focus tonight on public health ordinances and how communities can self-determine. Um, by way of background, Wicomico County has at least 113 active poultry operations, which produce at least 11 million chickens per year. Despite these high numbers, the poultry industry is continuing to grow on the eastern shore. And Wicomico County is um, the fourth highest, has the fourth highest number of chickens of any county in the state. Um, the increased density of these large operations and poultry complexes and the waste they produce threaten public health in the ways that Jillian and Jacoby mentioned, right? The air um, emissions cause asthma and bronchitis. They spread infectious diseases to nearby residences. They poison the groundwater and your drinking water that can result in liver damage, neurological impairments. And I don't know if Jillian mentioned this, but she did a, she and her colleagues wrote a, um, a, a second letter, a first letter before the HIA letter to the county commissioners detailing these public health threats from CAFOs, including industrial poultry operations, and that I think is also available on their website. Um, so what has the county done to date to protect you? So somewhat in response to community concerns, they did recently update their zoning laws. So zoning authority relates to the ability of local governments to restrict the number and types of buildings in different areas. So you'll have a residential zone, an industrial zone, an agricultural zone. And they used to have a 100-foot setback requirement for industrial poultry operations um, between the operation and pr property line. They did double that setback. They added some setbacks um, for exhaust fans on a poultry house to nearby residences um, and a, a couple other types of setbacks. Um, the county also has been very public about the fact that they rely on a state permit that's issued to individual poultry complexes um, pursuant to the Federal Clean Water Act, which is the federal environmental statute intended to protect your waterways. And they rely on that permit to protect your drinking water, your, your, the paleo channel. Um, but as Jillian mentioned, both the zoning ordinance that they passed and the clean water permit are extremely deficient. There is no requirement to control air emissions, which is problematic for your public health from what you breathe in, but also ammonia deposition is a primary source of water contamination. Um, they don't require any kind of monitoring, no in-stream monitoring to demonstrate that they're not polluting your waterways, no air monitoring to know what's coming out of these um, ventilated um, tunnel fans, even though we know that these um, operations produce air pollutants that threaten public health. There's no consideration of cumulative impact. So the state acknowledges they'll just rubber stamp these permits. You can have CAFO stacked after CAFO, 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 CAFO. If you want to see um, a really stark example of what that looks like, Backbone Road in Somerset County, is, it's horrifying in terms of the density that you have in that community. Um, there's no density requirements in the zoning regulation, meaning there's four CAFOs from, in terms of... Um, you know, distances between each other. So again, you're going to get this kind of density that results in cumulative impacts to um, nearby residences. Um, so a public health ordinance actually can fill some of those gaps. So a public health ordinance is not zoning. It is not limited to restricting um, um, certain activities in areas, right? It's just it can restrict any kind of activity 
that results in human health impacts regardless of the location, and it can go beyond setbacks, so it can require things like pollution controls. Um, the good news is that Wacomico County has the broadest authority given to any county by the state. So the, st the counties derive, local governments derive their authority from the state. And Wacomico County has the broadest legislative powers that a county can have. The county council and the county executive together sit as the local board of health. And they must, by law, meet at least two times a year. So it is well within your right to ask them to meet as the local board of health to address the public health impacts from industrial poultry operations. Um, so what could be addressed by a public health ordinance? Well, the ones that have been passed in other states often have requirements for these operations to obtain a health permit. And that health permit has to be renewed every five years to account for newer information. It allows health department inspectors to get on site. It can require the control of air emissions and air, air pollution. Um, in addition, it can require the monitoring of air pollution, the monitoring of potential water pollution. It can require fees. So we heard from Jillian, right, a lot of local health departments are cash-strapped, but these health permits can um, require, and in fact, Wacomico County, as a local board of health, has the power to require fees from the regulated entity to pay for those costs. So it's not on the backs of the taxpayers who are also on the receiving end of the pollution to pay for this this kind of monitoring. Um, you can have enforcement provisions that give the county and the health department the ability to um, collect penalties and enforce, and enforce against violations of the ordinance. And finally, I think this hasn't happened in an ordinance, but I think it's well within the legal authority to do so. You can require the poultry companies to be on the hook. So right now, the way the industry is um, structured, the contract grower who is contracted to grow chickens for the big companies, the Purdue, the Mount Airs, et cetera. They, by contract, are 100% required to deal with the dead animals and the pollution, and the companies own the chickens and walk away with the profits, right? The state has the authority to regulate the companies. They have refused to date. The local governments could require, under health permit, for the, our local health ordinance, rather, for the companies also to be required to apply for this permit to also pay for fees, to also pay for the kind of monitoring and controls that we need so that those costs are not borne by contract growers who statistically live nationwide at or below the poverty line. So these are the kinds of things that um, we should be talking to them about, I think, and that they, the Wicomico County Council has the authority to do. Um, the Something that Jacoby talked about is, you know, Jillian and her colleagues can provide the most, um, you know, the best science to provide the factual predicate for a public health ordinance. I can help to draft an ordinance that's legally defensible, but it's meaningless unless your county council um, folks adopt it, right? Meaningless. And so that leads to organizing, which is what Jacoby talked about. Um, recently, the in this, re in this region, Chesapeake Bay region, there was a ordinance passed by Cadoras Township in Pennsylvania. And just to give you a, a taste of what they did, so Hill and Dell Farms proposed building a, a 1.7 million bird operation, which would more than double the birds in the town of 4,000, as well as a new feed mill and egg washing facility. So when they start building infrastructure on top of these CAFOs, you know that means more CAFOs to come to support the infrastructure. And there was a gentleman that stepped out in that community and went to work. He flyered 600 homes to have a meeting with community members. He created, built a core group with other folks that focused on outreach and fundraising. They had multiple town halls like we have tonight, right? They put up signs. Not everyone has access to the Internet. They created a phone tree, et cetera. They talked to, you know, 
folks next door in the next township because they didn't want to just push CAFOs next door. They wanted a regional movement. And most importantly, they figured out a political strategy to move the three township supervisors that they needed to move, in addition to going to every planning commission meeting, every board of supervising meeting. And they took advantage of press, right? So they built a movement. And really, as Jacoby said, it's not really about the fight against CAFOs per se. It's about a fight about power, right? Empowering people, depowering corporations in order to protect yourself and take back your democracy. When you have an HIA that just adopts the industry recommendations without doing a real assessment, and on top of that, you're misrepresenting the community involvement, that is an imbalance of power that everyone in this room should be concerned about, right? And that's the kind of thing that folks in this community are interested in shifting. In addition to shifting the balance of power, there's a culture question also that Jacoby mentioned as well, right? Like, what, what do you want for yourselves in this community? What do you want this community to look like? I've um, worked with communities around the country. I, you know, the, the conversation usually starts about coexisting with the CAFO industry. My personal opinion is that the inherent structure of the CAFO industry does not allow you to coexist without the poisoning of your air and water, without the inhumane treatment of animals, without tearing up your roads, eroding your tax base, and not without farmers living at or below the poverty line. There is a different way to have, there's a different agricultural system to be had that's much more just, fair, and sustainable, and that has occurred in the Eastern Shore. We did a really interesting report at Food and Water Watch called The Economic Cost of Food Monopolies that looked at the agricultural system on the Eastern Shore from the 40s to 2012, which is the data set that we had from USDA. It used to be very diverse. You didn't used to have everything, all your eggs in one basket, pardon the pun, right? You had truck crops. You had a lot of fruit, a lot of vegetables. You had livestock, too. And um, when we extrapolated at what, like, what would your community look like now if you had a diverse, or what would um, the community look like if you had a, as diverse of an agricultural system now as you had in the 40s and 50s, you know, farmers would have made $137 million more dollars, right? The poultry industry came in. They converted the fruits and vegetables to corn and soy to support their industry. They took away some of the infrastructure needed to support, like the canning industry, for excess production of vegetables, et cetera, right? So we know that you can have a different system of agriculture that's safer for communities, that's more just, where farmers can make a living wage, right? And so that's, I feel like, the conversation that people in this community want to have, um, and we know, because we know that something better can exist. So that conversation's happening, right? What do you value in Wicomico County? Is this kind of industry consistent with those values? And so far, the elected leadership has not been that responsive, right? And in fact, you know, my personal opinion is that there, there's been some collusion to produce an HIA that's faulty, to give political cover to your county council to avoid re really responding to community concerns in a real way. Um, and I should also mention, too, that the movement doesn't stop at the borders of this community or Somerset County, that there is an interest on the part of some state legislators to provide some relief. I think it's perfectly appropriate to call on your state officials as well um, to also institute a moratorium statewide and try to fill gaps again where their local elected officials aren't willing or able to respond to local community concerns. Um, so anyway, I just lastly... You know, it's hard because a lot of people tell me, you know, they have so much money and influence, and it's true. The poultry industry, like other industries, have a lot of money and influence. But everyone can vote, no matter how much money you have, right? And so getting engaged and making this issue and other issues you care about an issue that is 
becomes an election issue, right, where the message is to your elected officials, if you don't respond to our concerns, you will be unseated, right? Everyone has that power. So thank you again for having me. Um, at Food and Water Watch, we're here to support the community as, as much as we can, and I really, um, really respect the leaders and others that are on the front lines in this fight and in the trenches, and I thank you for your inspiration. So I think in the time we have left, it's time for some dialogue between the audience and, and uh, the folks in the panel and, and let your voices be heard here in either of these two mics. And identify yourself and please step up to the mic. Hello, thank you very much. Many of you may not know me and I was introduced and I work with an organization, a nonprofit organization named CATA. It's a farm worker support committee and I'm an immigration specialist. I have been in this community since the early 90s. I have been an advocate for farm workers and immigrants in this community, mainly Latinos, but here recently we have a large community in this surrounding of Haitians and also of their poultry workers, many of them. I'm glad you mentioned it. It was not mentioned in many other instances and meetings or town meetings before, and I want to bring this out because they're usually the disposable workers, okay? Because of the language barriers they are subject to, and they live in this community, it's hard for some of you to connect with them, and they're not here presently. That's what I'm here. I have somebody here with me who lives in this community. We have a housing community here, FDA-approved housing, that is mainly for farm workers on Booth Street. Most of you know about uh, the Learner's Apartment. There's a large community there of Hispanics and Haitians and African Americans that work in the poultry industry. Uh, a lot of the issues that you guys brought up is so clear in this community. I know the health department is aware of it. Uh, there are a lot of families that go through the health department because of behavior issues with their children or because family planning. There's so many things they can go through, you know, the health department, and they're aware of this community. There is a community over here that is called the reservation. There's a lot of Latinos there. There's a lot of Haitians. Patrick, um, all this area, Delaware Avenue, I know there's some, they're property owners too. They're not here. They're not aware of what's going on in this community. That's what I'm here because I work closely with this community and I bring this information to them. It is very hard for them to come to this type of meetings due to their, many of them work two jobs or because there's not body to can, they can translate to them. And that's what I want to, you know, let all of you aware that they are here and they're here to stay. They're doing the jobs that many cannot do or will not do. And with this political arena that is happening now, a lot of immigrants, a low wages. The low wages, and they are being subjected to many 
um, discrimination, if you want to say. I thank you for letting me have this opportunity. Thank you. Do you have any comments from the panel? Dr. Scobie, Wilson. Should be on. Hello? Okay. There we go. So, no, definitely thank you for uh, those <laughs> comments. And I'll just reflect on, you know, my previous comments about Dr. Wing. One, one very important part of the social movement in North Carolina against uh, industrial animal operations is the, is the worker. They, they organize a lot of the workers. So Naima Muhammad, Saladin Muhammad, Black Workers for Justice, they've done a lot of work to organize uh, workers on the farms and also workers in the processing plants, right? So you have a lot of immigrant women in North Carolina uh, who are in those processing plants. So I think what's important for this discussion in this state is we need to have those movements come together. It's just not the folks who host the farms will be impacted, but also the impacts on the workers and also those impacts on the farmers. Because, you know, when you look at the, as, as uh, was said earlier, Michelle said earlier, part of the issue is, and John said, it's really sharecropping. Yeah. If, you, if, you look, if, you talk, if you call it what it is, you have people who are basically doing old school sharecropping. So you got the sharecropping that's going on, you got the impacts on the workers, and you got the impacts on the communities that are hosting the operations. That's where the social movement really has to come together. And, and, and so we have to see, uh, we'd like to see like a similar, we can grow that movement just like in North Carolina. Those groups are working together in North Carolina. We need to see those groups, community stakeholder groups working together uh, in Maryland as well. You know, we have um, meetings on Sundays in my office where most of the workers come to our office on Sundays more the day off. Sometimes after church, they come to our office. They have an office downtown. And we talk about different issues. Uh, recently, we have a lot of poultry workers from the local industries. They talk about the issues about no, you know, not having breaks, being uh, pushed to work on the lines, which is very uh, fast, moving really fast. If they don't have breaks, they can't go to the bathroom. We heard this in the news, in the media recently from other, you know, and this is happening locally. They're coming to my office. First of all, when they come to my office, they come for issues for immigration because they want their documents to be moved or prepared for them. I have been doing immigration since the 90s. I am BIA accredited, that means Board of Immigration Appeals, that I, for the federal government that I can provide services to the immigrant community for less money than an attorney. And that's what they come to, to me. I have worked in different segments in this uh, area since the 90s. And I, you know, I have gained the trust of this community the Latino, Hispanic, and the Haitian community. And I feel very good about this trust and able to talk here in front of you about this because some of them are afraid. They're afraid to be target. So if you have workers 
work you know in their industry under poor conditions and there are being when they slaughter the chickens and the blood splash all across their faces and their goggles are not changed or given you know or give not given the the gloves when they caught in the chickens and they get cops and they get problems that they gotta go through the health through the health uh no, the hospitals, then not so much the hospital. They go to their medical attention in the industry. They go directly to the nurse or the little space they give. They're given in their plant. I want to thank all of our panelists from this panel, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, assistant professor with the Maryland Institute of Applied Environmental Health and the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health, University of Maryland, College Park. Dr. John Ickard, Professor Emeritus of Agricultural Economics at the University of Missouri. Michelle Merkel, Co-Director of Food and Water Watch Justice at Food and Water Watch. And Dr. Julian Fry, Project Director at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health Center for a Livable Future, and faculty member in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences, Behavior and Society at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. We're off for the next week for Thanksgiving, but a week after that, you'll hear another part of the panel, the keynote address by Dr. John Ickert, Professor Emeritus of Agricultural Economics at the University of Missouri. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. And to podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>